The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to a special edition of the Royal Court Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens, recording at home and over the internet and during the summer school holidays, as you will definitely hear. A conversation with Dutch singer, songwriter, composer and performer, Venda. It's one of the anomalies of the United Kingdom's position as an island nation that not only does it seem to me to assume that every other country in the world is spending most of its time looking on with fascination at what is happening here, but it rarely pays any attention to what is happening anywhere else. There are few arenas where this is more clear than in the performing arts. Throughout the past 20 years, the ignorance that British theatre makers have for theatre that is being made throughout the world, or that British playwrights have for what is happening in international playwriting, has struck me again and again. It reminds me of British attitudes to food in the 1970s or to football in the 1980s. It's not real theatre. It's weird, foreign muck. In recent years, I've become aware that the same applies to music. The artist who brought the myopic nature of the British musical world most clearly to my awareness is the startling Dutch singer, songwriter, performer and composer, Venda Schneider. I'd never heard of Venda, as she is publicly known, when I started writing a series of songs with her and for her to perform in the last years of the last decade. The extent of her status, the level of her success was unknown to me. For 20 years, Venda has been one of the most celebrated singers and performers in the whole of Europe. She released her first album in 2004 as a recent graduate from the Amsterdam Theatre School, a collection of celebrated French chansons supported by the Metropole Orchestra. The following 17 years had seen her release nine more albums and tour the continent to sell out audiences. She's sold out runs at Amsterdam's astonishing Carré Theatre. She's plundered the European songbook with force and drama and brilliance. She's released haunting electronica. She's performed a compelling version of Schubert's song cycle, Winterreise. Her voice is graced with a haunting soul and yearning. It evokes Kate Bush to me, or PJ Harvey, or Roisin Murphy, or Courtney Barnett. But it's also touched with a more historical legacy, by the spirit of Edith Piaf, perhaps, of Lotte Lenya. In 2019, she debuted a remarkable exploration of the form of songwriting in the Royal Court Theatre upstairs. In a piece of work that she co-conceived with designer and Royal Court associate Chloe Lamford, she gave the first iteration of the song project. Working with playwrights Evie Crow, Sabrina Mafuz, Somalia Nonye Seaton, Steph Smith and Debris Stevenson, and in collaboration with composer Isabel Waller-Bridge and choreographer Imogen Knight, Venda explored the possibility that there are some ideas that couldn't be dramatised, that couldn't be articulated in speech or dialogue, but that could, in fact, only be sung. It was a visceral, forceful evening. She performed the song project like she performs all of her work with a startling tenderness and savagery and wit. She's a creature of the theater in her metabolism as much as her training. And she brings that theatricality to every moment of her work. 
The evening is a celebration of light over darkness, of hope over fear, of the mess and beauty of the human body. It sings with feminism and physicality. It's coming back to the theatre downstairs this summer of 2021. It's a real pleasure to welcome her here on this special one-off episode of the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast. Venda, welcome back to the Royal Court, mate. Oh, thank you so much. My God, you and words. It's amazing. Thank you so much for this generosity. I mean, yeah. I didn't even need to lie about any of that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I am in quarantine now yeah. in London and um, I'm really happy to be back. The thing was, uh, the I think it was the 13th or the 14th of March, I was in London last year. And then my manager called me because I was recording, I was rehearsing for the song project because we were opening in May and he called me, said, you have to come back to Holland because the borders are gonna close. I was like, what are you saying? Don't be crazy. And then he said, you have to come back. And then I went back. So it's really nice. It feels like I'm picking up where I left off and I'm happy. Yeah, really. It's it's one of the strangest, one of my strangest experiences as we come out of uh, the last 18 months, at least for now, is the kind of oddity of seeing somebody you've not seen since before the start of the pandemic or doing something that you've not done since before the start of the pandemic and it feeling weirdly normal. Like like it's it's barely been interrupted. It's really odd to me. True. I have to say, though, I so I haven't been able to perform for a long time of course and then I then in July so uh yeah uh, a month ago I could finally do a project that was postponed and I was it was with an orchestra with 22 strings and we were like rehearsing that and to be in a room with 22 strings like true legends and be I I just couldn't I couldn't sing. I was crying the whole time because it was so unprofessional. But I mean, because this this vibe, this energy of being with people who make music, and then to be able to perform it, I was I was in Carré. It was like for the first time that I saw like there were twelve hundred people watching because they've been testing, and it that didn't feel normal at all. I was I was coming on stage. I saw all these people together. We started making music, and I was also like again after the first song. I started crying. I thought, "Geez, I look like I look like you know these American people who start crying after one song and then do that for twelve minutes." But it really was such a cathartic experience because it I kind of felt what I've been suppressing for a year and like and three months and I I've been like kind of okay well so this is a new situation so well let's go on and and then finally when we were on stage it was like oh it all came up and it really didn't feel like normal at all but day two it was business as usual <laughs> that's how quick it goes huh? yeah it's a really beautiful story 
I um, I'd normally start these conversations with exactly the same question, and I'm going to start the. Uh, uh, and I always say I'm going to start with the same question, and indeed I am going to start with the same question for you, um, which is um, when when was the first time that you ever went to the theatre? I think I was four, and I lived in Indonesia then. My father was a civil engineer, and they took us to this dance show. It's not really theater, right? But I no, mean, that's all right. Um, but and I ha I have like not so much memories of when I was young, but I do have this memory very vividly that that they there were dancers it was really beautiful and all the gamelan do you call it like that also in england the gamelan i don't know that music? word but so it's an instrument you yeah. never mind i mean yeah okay so uh, it's beautiful anyway and it's and and there are all these dancers and and the at the end of the show they said if somebody from the audience wants to dance too come on stage and i like jumped from where I was and just really ran. I, I didn't even ask my parents. I was like, yeah, me, I'm going to dance. And I, I just danced. It was so much fun. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And even, I mean, you see like now with all the iPhones and we have like a million pictures a day of our kids and we never look at them. I don't have any pictures of that. So I, I'm just having that in my memory that that was my first experience, experience with theater. My mother took us a lot to music. I think, yeah, the first thing was a musical. It could even be Les Miserables. Could be what? Les Miserables. Les, Les Miserables. It's your, yeah. your accurate French pronunciation. It's what we English call oh. Les Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> Like Nina Simone sings Namakita Park. Where would that have been? Would that have been in Indonesia or would that have been when you were in Holland? Les Miserables was in Holland. It was in yeah. Carré, in Holland. Cats could be cats. Wow. That's so amazing. Because you, you were born, actually born in England, right? Is that right? I was born in Beckenham, yes. My father was working on the Thames. Thames? Thames. Mm. Thames. Thames. Uh, Potato, potato. And so, <laughs> yeah, he was working and I had a brother, two years older, and uh, of course a mother, and uh, and uh, she was pregnant of me and uh, they were living in Beckenham, Albemarle Road. I was wow. three weeks early. When I was doing, when I was rehearsing and making this, this show for the Royal Court, yeah. I went back to the place where I was born. So I tried to find the road. And then my I asked my mother, where did we live? Where did we live? And she was like, I don't know. I don't know. She's a bit, she can be a bit chaotic. And then and then she sent me pictures of of the of my baby book pictures. And then and then I went into a street and all these houses looked alike. And I was really like trying to find is it this house, that house? There were three houses in the end. And then I made a selfie with myself by that house. And then I went home. Oh, no, I bought socks there and a bracelet. <laughs> because I thought my father put me on the earth there. I should have had my socks there to walk on the ground where he put me. Well, whatever. So, um, 
and then and then I went home to Holland and I looked in the baby book and then on the birth card is the address where I live. So it's like, mom, he's he's. Was it the right house? Did you take the selfie outside the right? No, oh no! <laughs> You're gonna have to go back this month. You're gonna have to I go will. back to the real yeah, one. I will. <laughs> it's lucky they sold socks on the street that you were born. That's very metaphorically useful, isn't it? No, I just went into the street where they sold socks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you have any memory of living in England, or was it very, very, you very, very small? And I came back when I was two, so right. Right. I'm always interested in um, the relationship between artists and um, immigrants or emigres or whatever, that notion of being dislocated from a place from which you were born and then raised somewhere else. Why are you interested in that? I think they're really connected. I think artists see the world from the position as an outsider. Hmm. I think I always think, um, uh, you know, both of us living in London and Amsterdam, uh, cities which are defined by tourism, right? Uh, and the tourist in both cities is often, especially English tourists in Amsterdam, is often really uh, insulted and a subject of just kind of mockery. But I think a good artist will kind of see the world with the same perspective of awe and astonishment as a tourist does. I like to think of myself as a tourist everywhere good. I go. Yeah, yeah. In the best sense. Yeah. Of- yeah, of the trying to see the world. I think that's a good, it's a nice, but there's also a thing. So I was born in England and then I went to Holland for three months in a village. And then I went for 10 months to Samarang and then four months to Jakarta and then three months to Holland and then three years to West Africa and then back to Holland. It also kind of, there is a nice thing about it because you can be quite detached from where you but. Yeah. You, there's also a negative thing about that you're quite detached to. <laughs> so I, I don't have, I sometimes don't have the fee- feeling of a home in a way, which is weird because I've been living for 22 years in Amsterdam. Right. But still, I feel, I could not say, I have these people around me that say, I want to be buried here. Yeah. This is, and then I'm like, oh, interesting. I don't have that feeling as much. That sense of finding a place where you want to return to the earth. Yeah, and that you're grounded somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Have you always sung? It's like singing always. I mean, the way you talk about that story of your first theatrical experience. Yeah, I've I've, there's I've been gifted with uh, with a uh, how do you call tunnel vision. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, really, I, I I can't. Well. They say that I was whistling in the when I was a baby. So when I was one, I was whistling, and then and then I wanted to be a dancer when I was four. <laughs> and and then there's this interesting story that I thought I had this religious epiphany listening to Kate Bush when I was eleven, listening to the man with the child in his eyes, mm. and then having this total security like how do you say that like certainty sorry that I was like I'm gonna be a singer that's what I'm gonna be and then I pursued it like in one big arrow until now I'm 42 I'm still like that is what I'm doing I'm making shows and I'm singing songs yeah um once I was performing and I went to the lobby and then a woman came to me and she said uh, I was 18 when you were six, 
when we were in Africa and she was at the American embassy and we went every two weeks to the American embassy because they had a swimming pool to swim. So, and then she said, you always wanted to go up to my room, not swim, but listen to the records of Kate Bush because I had all the records of Kate Bush. And I was like, no. And then she said, yeah, that's what you did. And then, so I have this made up memory that when I was 11, I also have like this, I know where I was. I know what weather it was. I know what I was wearing. I know how I listened to it. And then it's all, no, it's, it's a different memory. You, you were six and I don't have any memory of that. That's really beautiful. It might be that there was something uh, as an 11 year old that was kindled from before your memory, your kind of cognitive memory state where you were in some way reminded of what you were like as a as a precognitive child. Mm -hmm. You were yeah. reminded of listening to Kate Bush. Yeah. I'm just really pleased that I got Kate Bush in the introduction without yeah. having talked to you about Kate Bush. She was <laughs> my first love, really. Bette Midler right. and Kate Bush were my first, like, loves. And I have to say, so in Africa, we had two tapes, uh, Mary Poppins and Sound of Music. So I had a Julie Andrews overdose I love her, but I mean, she was also part of the love and hate afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, was, was your commitment to kind of, you know, a life, in, a life in song, to being a singer, was that something your parents kind of like supported or encouraged or were they just baffled by it? Or what? how did they react to this commitment, this zeal that you were going to be a singer? I don't know. It was really natural. They didn't say anything about it. And my mother has a history that when she was 18, she wanted to go to theater school. Right. And she, um, her mother said no, because that's just not what we do as, I don't know, whatever, family tree etiquettes yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And and then she she was really hurt by that. And she also had a niece younger. And she when she was 18, she said, I want to go to art school. And then my mother's mother said, oh, don't be ridiculous. And then my mother said to my niece, I am going to, I am going to, uh, no, I'm not going to like, you are going to art school. You have to go to art. So she really pushed her into art school. So I think when she saw I was pursuing creative things, she just thought, yeah, let's go. <laughs> and my father was a bit oblivious. He was like, He's also like this very, from that generation, man not really paying attention, trying to keep us all safe, but not really knowing what's going on. <laughs> My mother dragging him to every performance I ever did and then falling asleep or no, not falling asleep, but we're, no. I mean, he loved me, but he wasn't really like over enthusiastic, and, but he wasn't against it. So that was really good. Um, and the first song I ever performed with that I can really remember was Kate Bush, the man with the child in his eyes. Can also remember I was really sick and nauseous and 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 totally like so nervous. And um, before performing, yeah, yeah. Where did you perform? Where did you perform the man with the child in his eyes? In school, and uh, but I think. It's really interesting, the whole, all, everything around it was already really important. So what was I wearing? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what were the words? What was I trying to tell? Um, yeah. You know, so I was really already 
very much into the theater kind of performing of a song, like really storytelling on music, because I also have friends that are more into pop music and their parents bring them to club venues. And, you know, it's more of going to rock bands. But with me, it was already the singing of songs was always about telling a story with words on music. Right, right. You trained. Trying, yeah, trying to make a theatrical performance out of it. I think that's really compelling in every time I've ever seen you perform ever anything. There's even sat at the piano, there's a kind of, you know, there's a theatricality to the way you play. Which Thank I, you. It's, yeah, it's just really comes really like, it's really not something I really have thought of, but yeah. I, it just happened. I remember also uh, my mother told me the story from her perspective too but when i was 11 so i started to like discover songs yeah and then you got when you went to a record store you when you bought a cd you also got like a cd with songs that you could discover you know we didn't have spotify anything so you discovered them like that a bit and then and then i heard a song and i thought this is amazing i'm gonna study that song and i'm gonna perform it for my mother and then i went downstairs and then <laughs> and then i said i'm i have a song i have to perform for you and then it was it was the song cocaine from randy newman <laughs> and i didn't know what it meant but i really was into it got some cocaine from a friend <laughs> and only thing that my mother was listening and she said yeah that's really well performed and maybe something for later so you know <laughs> she was <laughs> You went, you went to theatre school though, right? You went to theatre school in Amsterdam, is that right? True, when I was 19, I went to, but I also did audition for the conserv conservatory, uh, but I couldn't read notes or couldn't read anything. I didn't even know you had to be able to do that. So I just went in the audition and well, just got, how do you say that? They didn't let me in. So, and then I also did an audition for Dramatic School of Arts and I yeah. got hired. But I wasn't really good in school. I think I just, I was, I was a bit overwhelmed coming to Amsterdam. And I mean, I wasn't brought up really in a very creative artistic environment. Everybody was studying law or medicine or, you know, it was a bit like everybody was playing tennis and hockey and it was nice. And it was, there were a lot of trees and, but there were also, there was a lot of prejudice towards artists to be an artist and so I came there and then everybody wanted to be an artist and I really just forgot actually that I wanted to be a singer and it took me kind of five years to remember it. Weird, huh? So what, so I don't unpack that story a little bit more. You were living in Holland, but not in Amsterdam. You were living, um, uh, whereabouts in Holland were you? Zeist, which right. is a little village where right. like just a village, not, yeah. Uh, just with trees and, and yeah. shit and so uh, and a bit of keeping up appearances kind of right okay thing. yeah we yeah. have similar villages in England as well yeah <laughs> yeah I can imagine similar villages all over <laughs> the world everywhere right <laughs> exactly yeah, they, that village is called Instagram now um, <laughs> the internet so no so the um, so I was there from, I think, nine and a half until 18. That must have been quite a culture change coming from out of West Africa into a village in Holland. Completely. As a nine-year-old, that's quite a dislocating experience in itself, right? 
yeah, it was pretty weird. And it was, for me, it was weird, but for the children there coming, for me coming there was also weird because they had already like their group of, like they had their wolf. Right. Yeah. There yeah. came me and I was, I was used to speaking French also all the time because I was in the French uh, part of Africa and I was in a French school. So, and I was also very used to having a very mixed environment. So it wasn't like this posh international school. It was like they were coming from everywhere and I was there with Portuguese and Arabic and my best friend came from Uruguay. So, and before that I lived in Indonesia and I was in an American school. So for me, for me to come in this very, how do you say, heteronomous or like yeah. very like, yeah. In a way, yeah, totally. It was, and also where the clothes you wear and the, the job your father did was quite important. And uh, yeah, I kind of tagged along, I think. I just tried to survive in a way. And I then, when I was 15, I got this friend who was so weird in a good way, like she <laughs> didn't give a fuck. And then, yeah, she just dragged me out of that thing and she really taught me that I can be anything I want and be a bit brave about it I think that's but really beautiful you're still friends with her now no I think she lives in Japan or something I don't know I mean <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah but then you went from Zeist to Amsterdam yeah um, which must have been another kind of disruption another culture shock another dislocation Uh, and that was what you were talking about. Not, um, I'm interested in uh, the experience of moving from the countryside to the city. Yeah. As well so, as the experience of going into the, the, the theatre school where everybody assumes that you want to be an artist. What, how did you find Amsterdam? And we were all thinking that we were God's gift. God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 700 Billie Eilishes to... <laughs> <laughs> no, not true actually God, that woman is talented I can't get over yeah. it the new album by the way uh, so yeah I came there so I wasn't born with any feeling of orientation you know so I I couldn't find my way uh, in that city for quite some time and I can remember the first day I went to school I asked direction to a junkie in a like he was in, like completely out of his mind and I was like excuse me um <laughs> do you know the way to, <laughs> that was, there were no iPhones with Google Maps and I was, and he was like, what are you asking of me? And and then I remember I asked like, and I I need to buy some toilet paper. Do you know where I can get that? And he was like, what are you, alien? Go away, go back to the farm you were born in. So yeah, so that was, that was, I just survived on a bike and going all the time in the wrong direction and and then and I just it was also fun I guess but I was a bit scared I, I think I I now have a friend she's 20 and she comes to live she came to live in Amsterdam like nine months ago and she even with COVID she knew her way to where the party was and where the fun was and all these things and I remember that I was in Amsterdam having this little space uh, one by one and just reading all the time. I was just reading and, and, uh, and going to school. And it was quite interesting because we, we had 
we had no chairs or tables. It were all like empty spaces with mirrors where you had to like discover yourself and peel your character down and then build it up again. And all these things, I was like, oh my God. Uh, so it really tore me up a bit. I think it was really good. But at, at that time, I felt horrible, like horrible. Were you training to sing or training to act? Or was it a course that uh, included all of those different elements? All, all, all the different elements. It was quite, like, quite immersive. Do you, mm. Is that a word? Yeah. So, so I was doing tap dance and flamenco dance, and I was doing modern dance, and I was doing you know, the repertoire singing, that means you take a song like from Brecht of, or, you know, from the songbook of Holland or Cole Porter or whatever. And then you, you, you get a lessons how you perform a song, but you also get training in music and choir singing and, and you, and you get acting classes and, and you get also a history of, of, of uh, a theater. It was really, actually really great. When I think about it, it was, Sounds extraordinary. Sounds a great training. Yeah, yeah. And also we were like eight people in one class. We were spoiled to death. I mean, we had like 20 teachers teaching us and we were, I think, 80 or 70 hours a week in school. So there was no, I started drinking when I was 25. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Because uh, uh, there was uh, such rigorous work. You were working so hard. Yeah. 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 And then... Um, then I, I really was trying to discover who I was and what I was doing. So I was a bit like, I think it was really good because I was so sure that I came in there as a singer. And then in five years that all was blurred. And mm. I got into this pool of choices artistically. And then, and then I came out, actually, I remember in the fourth, because I, it's four years and then the I had to redo the first year. So after five years, I remember going into the office of the artistic director. And then I said, really, I said, I sat down and I said, I know what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a singer. I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to make my own shows and I'm going to tour and that's what I'm going to do. So that's I, I love that story that you went into it with that certainty that you'd had since you heard Kate Bush for the second time in your life when you were 11 yeah. years old and decided you're going to be a singer then. You went into this kind of vortex of dismantling your sense of self, yeah. really losing all confidence about who the fuck you were. Yeah. And then you come out at the end of it and you're going to be a singer. <laughs> it's really, there's something really yeah. beautiful about that. It's a really great story. But actually, it really is, this is my cycle. I mean, from the moment I was, I think, 22, 20 years later, I have the same cycle all the time. I dismantle myself. I get into projects. I go to Berlin to do, like, electronical music. I completely, like, get lost in everything. And then, like, after a year, I'm like, I, I'm a singer. I'm making these songs. It's crazy. That's really fascinating, that return to con continually reinventing yourself as a singer. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then actually you could say, I w I'm just actually curious, do you have that same experience I, as a writer? I, I think, uh, it was really interesting, I was really interested in something you said right at the beginning, which is, is you're kind of saying, I'm good at one thing, you know, there's what, and I think that's completely the same with me. Yeah. I, I can write, and fun, specifically, I'm actually not very good at writing for television, or not very right. good at writing for right. film. 
I can write for theatre. That's all I can do. I can't fucking change a light bulb. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm not that bad at swimming. I'm quite good at swimming, and I, and, and and I'm not always terrible as a father. But uh, but but fundamentally, I just write plays. And, and what I, is for you like? What is the difference between writing for TV and writing for theatre? The What's the light the liveness, the liveness right. that we're in the same room. We're just in the same room as each other. Uh, you know, when you talked about seeing. 1,200 people at the Cade Theatre for the yeah. first time. Uh, that miracle, the miracle of the possibility of the assembly of strangers and True. the fact that you can take a 1,000 people and they can share an experience together, I yeah. find really yeah. profound. I think it, I feel it almost feels like a religious thing for me, you know, and I'm not yeah. a religious person. I'm quite a secular thinker, yeah. quite a scientific thinker, but that possibility is touched with the spirit of faith, I think, for me. Nice. I, I oh, really beautiful. love that. Yeah, you, I agree. I, I yeah. agree. Yeah. You, but you, when you left the theatre academy, your career started incredibly quickly, right? I mean, you, you, you made your first album within what? How long? How long after out of university were you? When? And how the hell did you do that? <laughs> you, I you just tell the, you just tell the artistic director I'm going to be a singer, and he's like, okay, I'll call my mate. He can record an album. What happened? How did you get your first well, album it's made? Crazy. When I think about it, I it really it. I, I just worked also like a right. dog. How do you say? I yeah, worked exactly. Worked like a dog. Like yeah. crazy because I was so sure, and I was also like very excited about the possibility of magic. So what you're saying about coming together and and experiencing something and to be able to create that and to share that for me gave me such a boost of energy so when i so when i finally thought yeah this i'm going to make a show i was really determined i was really determined i'm really pragmatic about it also like okay so i need songs i need arrangements i need musicians i need a website <laughs> i need you know just like what do i need where do i need to go i need to move quickly now before it just slips all out of my fingers and i get lazy or something i don't know i was of course afraid of death like we all are in some ways and then i had also um during uh my time at school uh they call it etudes so the etude is something you do of 10 minutes uh, and then you just try something out. You you try out theater making. So, um, I was very privileged to know the French language because I had lived in Africa, and everybody was singing kind of the same iconic songs. And I was like, yes, I can go into the library into the French section. And I can understand all these beautiful, poetic, existential words of the chanson from the 50s and the 60s. The, the, the amazing like repertoire that is found, that to be found there, like the songs Piaf has, has sung, the Greco, Ferré, Brel, Brassin, uh, uh, Aznavour, and I wasn't really aware of the fact that there was this nostalgia hanging on to it or that there was this kind of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, a bit of, uh, mm, how do you say, 
maybe even conventionality about it or something, how do you say, conservative about it. Yeah. I just thought, wow, all these songs go about are about loneliness and about death and about war and about love in a very deep way, not just I'm hurt because uh, somebody broke up with me. No, it's really like there's a depth to this feeling of what it is to be a human and to experience love and to lose it. And those were all there and I could understand them. So I thought, mm, I'm going to use the etude and sing these songs. And that was a big success. And I kind of thought, mm, I'm bad at everything, really. You can see my reports, like they are horrible. They're really literally like, we don't know what to do with you. This is in my report. So I was like, this is the only thing I should be doing. And then and then I thought, okay, if I'm going to make shows, I'm going to make conceptually a show of 90 minutes with the French chanson of the 50s and the 60s. And then I made kind of this, well, it, I'm not going to bore you with the whole story, but I mean, it was, a, but that became such a success uh, uh, I was quite startled by it also because I, I didn't know there was this whole um, community that kind of was like, oh, there's this girl of 22 uh, singing the great iconic songs in perfect French. And what what is this? So it was quite like interesting in a way. And I was in this naive really conception that everybody understood the French. So I was like, everybody was listening to 90 minutes of a girl singing French and I felt really connected. And then and then slowly and gradually I found out they, a lot of people were there also because they were thinking of their second house in France and they liked the baguette and they liked the da 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 and the tra la la and the, and the, and the, and the Gauloise. And I was like, no man, this is about now. This is about, so I was really grateful for the success and I could like really get a signature, get my, like my training hours of performing. I think for young people, it's very, very important to just perform, 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 perform to find there. Yeah. But after a while, after like three years or four years, I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm, this is going to stop. I just closed the door of all the French chansons and said, I'm never, ever going to do that again. And wrote my own songs and went into the clubs and tried pop music. And that was a bit less successful. But for me, it was huge, a huge success because I, I discovered like a whole new way of being a singer. What? Uh, can we talk about writing for you? What was the first, what were your first, uh, your memories of your first attempts to write your own songs? What what kind of writers were you drawing on for inspiration? And uh, and how did it go? Like, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy writing? And you're writing in Dutch. Were you writing in Dutch? Were you writing in English or in French? What language were you writing in? I I wrote a song when I was 13 that's called Rip the Ribbon that was a uh, uh, that was a song about uh that I was going to like take off everything that I've ever known so I was really like always uh a lot of songs that I write go are about transformation you know my name Wende in Dutch means turning around so I just oh, I didn't and know you that. know die Wende in 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 German is the falling of the wall in 1989. I was born already, but it's like, 
it's all about like taking down walls and trying to transform. When I was 13, of course, I was not so deep, but still I have that. I write a lot about like trying to see, look into the mirror and find where I'm following my inhibitions and where I cherish what I am and have, but what I need to tear down to, to be, to have a broad perspective perspective about what life is I think also when I was a kid and coming into Zeiss and then seeing that everybody had this one truth about what life was trees and tennis and I came from a world where you know was totally different I still have I have also this urge to go into all these different world, modern classical music, into electronical music, into pop music, into singer songwriting and chanson and just singing these things all the time to tell all these worlds like there are different truths everywhere and we have to pay attention to that and i write in english and dutch does it feel very different writing in the two different languages could you describe what the difference is if it does well now i've worked with the writers like i've been writing with you and i've been writing with the playwriters uh, you know, the, the playwrights, the, the writers uh, in the Royal Court. Uh, before that, I was writing in English and now I'm a bit ashamed actually about the things. I mean, the depth that you can bring into language because it is your, your language is, you know, is, is mm, I will still write in English, but I, I'm a bit more humble about it than I was. But then, so, sorry, no, 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 it's fine. Because there are there are advantages as well to writing the second language, you know. I mean, I'm sure I, I, I think the lyrics for the song project have a really profound depth to them, um, and and the depth that comes out of writing in your first language. But you know, I'm haunted by the way Samuel Beckett, for example, would always write in French, because oh, yeah, he wrote his first drafts of a lot of his plays in French because he cherished the kind of clarity that the dislocation of writing in a second language gave him. He was able to think more scientifically because he wasn't just coming out of his soul. He was coming out of a different side of his mind. And I wonder if that's like writing in English for you. It is. Well, there is also, it's much easier to, to write I love you or je t'aime than ik hou van you. It's really, I can feel it when I say it. And it's also when I'm performing, I'm performing better in French. I had to really, really, really train to perform in Dutch. I couldn't. I have been doing it just lately, really extensively, like the last five years. But before that, I was, I felt it was so awkward to perform in Dutch. And I'd rather do it in English than than in French, it's easier, but there's also, I don't, I'm so curious how I Love You is feeling for an English person to sing. Is it the same as for me to sing that same thing or write that same thing in Dutch? Or is I Love You a bit less, has a bit less weight because it's culturally more, you know, but I don't know, English people aren't like, are they, Throwing around I love yous a lot in the family. 
Um, I think traditionally, conventionally, it's perceived, uh, you know, that kind of emotional access is something that's very difficult for English people. I'm not sure if that's still necessarily true. Um, what I'm thinking, though, is just that phrase, I love you, um, it doesn't only articulate uh, with kind of simplicity and directness what a feeling of one person for another person. It also evokes a hundred years of songwriting or kind of a hundred years of cinema. So when you tell somebody you love them, you're kind of also quoting John Lennon and Paul McCartney <laughs> <laughs> or Elvis Presley or something in a way because that, because that language is so soaked in a hundred years of songwriting. Interesting, yeah. But I also think it's really interesting to know because your introduction was actually, yeah, it was brilliant and true that uh, uh, it is, the other way around is the same thing. I mean, we are listening to a lot of English and a lot of American language all the time. So for us to sing I love you has much, I think a different meaning for an English or an American person to sing it. Because for us, I can really, you know, I'm quite anxious to do the song project in Holland, because the moment people start singing in English, there is this laziness of listening. When people start singing in, in Holland, in German or in French or in Dutch, they start listening in English because there's, so, there's this radio mode where everybody starts vacuum cleaning or just do their dishes and any. So I'm, I'm wondering, and I was also a bit like surprised when I came into the Royal Court people were actually really listening to the lyrics. And in Holland, when there's English, they just don't really. How did it start the song project? Well, it started actually with you. I mean, I, <laughs> I came to get to know you, and, which was wonderful. And then we went working together on the project I was doing in Holland. And then that, that came out of this question that I felt really alone writing everything myself. And, and I really wanted to know how it was if I worked together with people who, well, did that for a living and were born with this religious epiphany of, I need to be a writer. Well, <laughs> and, then, and then I asked you like, what if you didn't have a play but a song? And, and I've been doing that in Holland too. I've been asking writers of literature, like what if you didn't have a book, but a song. And there came there from there, there came uh, a, a, a show. And Chloe Lamford was doing the set design there. And she's an associate, she's a brilliant person. She's a wonderful woman. She, uh, she does a lot of opera and theater and she's really royalty, theater royalty. Uh, and she is an associate of the Royal Court. And she said, well, you know, the Royal Court is the place where uh, where there's contemporary writing and we have like this huge uh, network of, of writers. It wouldn't be, it'd be fun if we asked uh, writers, what if you didn't have a play but a song? And then we make a show out of that in the Royal Court. And I was like, yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but I didn't have the connection. So we started working on that. And I had another thing. Uh, I had always been working with men, not out of a statement, not per se. It was just what happened. And then 
And then we thought, wouldn't it be fun to see what happens, not the, uh, like in, in the themes, but just how is it to work with women? How is that? And then we were working, we found a group, Somalia Seaton, Steph Smith, Sabrina Mafouz, uh, Evie Crow and Debris Stevenson, all these different kind of voices in theater yeah. world and have a conversation and, and just ask the same question I asked you, like what if you didn't have a play, but a song, mm -hmm. what could we write? And from that came, I was working with Isabel Waller-Bridge making the songs. I was going on and off to London. And then in this pressure cooker, it was insane. It was like near psychosis, writing in two weeks, like 20 songs or something. It was crazy, crazy. Yeah. Uh, we And then out of that, we had like a, a bunch of songs and we had like this huge material of beautiful words, words, words. And we made 20 songs and those are going to be that's the song project. So when when I wrote with you and uh, yeah. I I delivered text to you as though it was almost kind of a poem on a page to be read. And yeah. there was this remarkable and for me profoundly moving transposition where you would take something that I'd written down in words on a page and then the next thing you would send me would be you singing these words and you'd imbued them with life and musicality and it was profoundly moving I, I really cherish that was that was that the same process with the playwrights so they delivered you text as though they were writing poetry and you and Isabel found the music in them what how so first of all did you speak to them all together or did you speak to them individually on one-on-one -on -one conversations well first I want to say yes I, it was it was mutual I really it was a very profound experience being able to talk to you about it was really like the first the first process which is going to be i think a lifelong process now because i love collaborating with mm. with, with like you and, and people and that are truly like gifted with this turning life into words and then i mean uh uh and having the conversation about what is a song actually so what is the chorus what is a verse what's a bridge what's rhythm what's rhyme and then um uh how to curate themes and how to like ask yeah. you or the writers like what is really moving what would you like to be sung which is what is like very important for you to be sung right now it can be very simple it can be very profound if it's profound we have to acknowledge the fact that it's not a book it's not a poem people are in a room listening to it like directly we can't have sentences that are so complicated that everybody can raise their hand and I stop singing and they can think about that sentence. I really have to have, I mean, Paul Simon, Nick Cave, David Byrne, Kate Tempest uh, uh, are all like examples of people who are truly gifted of like having very uh, deep poetry, but also being very communicative. Yeah. And then, so the first thing we did, Isabel and me, was having them in the room and to say, uh, to kind of say, we're good people. Uh, uh, we made songs already out of texts of them, little shards of words. And from Steph Smith, she made a, a play and I made a song out of that. So I wanted to mm. just show them instead of talking about it, show them. So this is what I could do with the song. And you have to be open to the fact that I'm going to, 
copy paste do yeah. a, like I'm going to play with them. I'm just yeah. not, it's for me, it's very uninteresting to get a text and then thank you. And then I write a song. It's yeah. really like you're going into, into the ring with each other and you're trying to find like this, this language and this song and this music that is really a collaboration. So we started talking about songs and about themes and then they got one day to write lyrics. So this was the first workshop of two weeks that we did. And then, no, one week, I'm sorry. And then they, after one day, they sent us lyrics. And then in two days, we made songs out of all these lyrics. Wow. So that was crazy. I That's really, really I was, all done in a week. Yeah, I was in the hospital after that in Amsterdam. So no, it's... That's <laughs> but not funny. Great. But there were like one or two songs we thought, ah, these are, this is a lead. And so I don't work conceptually as in like, okay, so this show is going to be about death or loneliness no it's going to be like we're going to have one lead and then we're going to follow a path and then in the end the show it's is going to show itself to us so oh, that's but, beautiful but it is a I, I bluffed also because i'm it's just i i kind of said everything is going to be all right just <laughs> trust me and they were like Okay. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know if this is going to be, but it did. Actually, the show is really generous. And, the, you know, we, but I mean, it takes work, right? Chloe Lamford, she, she curated a lot of things and Izzo and I, we were thinking like, if this song is here, then we would need as a juxtaposis, uh, is that a word? Juxtaposition, yeah. Yeah, we need to have this. If there is a love song, shouldn't we have a curse? If we right. have something about generation, intergenerational things, like the things I got from my mother and grandmother, shouldn't we also have a song about what we want to give to the future? So, and like that, songs just, and we had, we also, you have to, this is what we also did, Simon, in our collaboration. It's not, every text is not used is not a song so you can write like 15 lyrics and then two out of that are the right ones that doesn't mean the 13 other lyrics are bad but they're just they they are in another world they yeah. they they need they come back i have had songs that i've sang after 10 years because that was the right moment so it's really so i really had to explain that that not everything that has been written with heart and love will be used yeah 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 it was it came out of it and was isabel wallerbridge composing the music with you how were you two working together well i am in awe of this woman i have never met someone so generous and so like gifted in like sensing what is happening in a room feeling like what a song needs, what I need to do to make things. And she's funny and she's like fiercely talented. And she's, and so, and we didn't know each other. So we were like those days that we got the words and we were in one room, we didn't know each other. It was like, hi, so now we're going to do awkward things. It's like, get naked, get started. So, and that was, that was. <laughs> was, that, was it Chloe Lumford put the two of you together? Yes, Imogen Knight actually. Imogen Knight, right, right, right. Up that we should meet each other, and then, and then right away it was really safe. 
and 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 challenging. So I have never had something that in a room. I I don't like working in a room composing. Mm-hmm. But she was like both, like very safe and very challenging. And she, we just wrote, and it went all quite organically. And sometimes she went out of into another room, and then she was like, "I'm gonna look at this part. You go do this." And then I played things for her, or we just played out a melody or something. Yeah. It was fun. It was it was really good. And um, and now she has been arranging also a few things. Right. So, yeah. And t- t- tell me about the role of Imogen Knight, who's another artist I've worked with a a, a whole load of times and absolutely adore. Uh, yeah. Did Chloe brought Imogen to you, and then Imogen yeah. brought Isabel. Right. So, what what did Imogen? What was it like working with Imogen for you? Well, Imogen is really like a very subtle subtle uh how do you say um uh how do you say influence right uh, uh and also she's very like she's really she's she's actually doing the 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 directing the movement directing so the, so um she really looks at how the things are evolving and amplifying that. So she's not making up things and not like saying, okay, here you should do a little dance and here you should move like this and that. She's really like looking like what's happening and could we like, yeah, could we theatricalize that a bit? But but she's also very aware of the fact that it's also a concert and you shouldn't like over theatricalize it. It really mm. is about like, how do we get the right emotion across and not how good is the form we're making out of it? Because then it becomes very theatery and then right. the, the music is already like a lot of theatrical, yeah, information. So she's actually the guardian of truthfulness and that's, that's really that's really interesting and that's really nice and you need you need like the third eye that can do that and it's really the the artistic group like chloe who's curating and concepting conceptualizing the thing but also making the space for the songs and the yeah. words to land in and with isabel i've been like making giving the words a house and then Imogen is like making movement of these houses. And we are all like, like that team. And with the five writers, it's really, an, I, I can't emphasize enough how beautifully it has been like a collaboration. So, so it is like all these voices are, are this song project. It's really uh, articulated with great beauty. I'm really, um, uh, interested in the specific question of how Imogen worked with you as a performer, just because there's something in there about the difference between Vender and Vender Schneider. (laughs) There should be, actually. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, Because like a lot of kind of singers who perform their own work, uh, or it's almost like a kind of stand-up comedian, perhaps, who will perform their own text, or some theatre makers who will perform their own writing. There is, it's not like Vender Schneider we're watching. It's a no. persona that you, yeah. you're part of distilling and creating. Is that, is that fair? Is that a fair, fair description that, um, yeah. that you, you've created Vender a persona? Yeah, and I think it's, it's really interesting when you sing, the, 
the, the good thing about singing something towards an audience is that there is always this notion that the person who's singing it is really is really also experiencing it. Yeah. So when you see somebody play Hamlet really well, you never think like, how is Al Pacino doing? Because you know, yeah. so you know, he, yeah. <laughs> oh God, he, he my God, call yeah. somebody. But no, it's it's really like it's and with me, there's this ambivalence that that you're always like, is she actually experiencing this or not? And I kind of like this question because the audience has to think about themselves like that. Is this actually, am I, because it's not about me. I really don't like watching people perform that are forcing me to admire them or say something about their private life. I really, I, 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 everybody has to do what they have to do. And, uh, but I love it when somebody is, is, is super personal. There is a big yeah. difference between personal and private. And, 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 yeah. and that's what the persona in a way is, is like, I'm really amplifying. I have these, these emotions of loneliness it's not dramatizing them. It's like, it's like perfume. You're just concentrating them. And, and then in order to, in order to create a space where people come together, this is what I like about the live thing of, of theater is that we, we go into our lives and we have to take care of our kids and we have to pay the rent and we have to do the groceries and we have to be good at Christmas dinners and all these fucking things. And then, and then at one point you have this, you have life that passes on and passes on. And isn't there a greater thing than is to go into a room and collectively just in your chair on your own experience all these emotions song by song by song and then i have to be the vehicle of that so that that's that's what i that's what that's what my work is so people can see oh, i'm alive this is i'm alive this is what i am this is what i feel and then they go into the world and have their life again and then so i mean yeah extremely beautiful <laughs> yeah thank you really moving are you looking forward to doing it again are you looking forward to 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 bring the song project back Totally. I'm, I'm, I'm working on my uh, articulation because uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, 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 but it's great. I mean, it's great. And it's great talking to you and that you're taking the time and that I really feel like I've got another home uh, uh, besides Amsterdam. I got also this app of, of, uh, of, of Isabel. She said, welcome to your other home. And I was moved because it was, yeah, it's true. You know, the Royal court is, it's, oh, I can't, I mean, they have taken the risk to make a concert like this. I've bluffed my way into the fact that I wasn't knowing what I was doing there. And then they don't know me and they, they just took the jump and they took the adventure. I mean, Vicky and Lucy who are working there are such legends to, not only with me, but they just produce 
show after show that are risks and adventures and and they really welcome you they really welcome you and i feel really happy to have found mm. like this place where i can share that yeah and in the theater downstairs this time as opposed to the theater upstairs yes which is with all its beautiful back wall and its great legacy and history and 65 years of storytelling yeah it's a very spiritual room the theater downstairs i think you'll yeah. find the spirit of it I'm really looking forward to it. I, I, uh, yeah, I like, don't you, the first thing I do, even when I go into this apartment where I'm doing the quarantine, I'm always like sniffing out the yeah. soul of the place. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to have, to have a bit of that experience in the Royal Court. I think, I believe that really strongly. I believe, I think the, the court reminds me of Carré in that sense and that great yeah. theatres carry their histories with them. Yeah, and every performance and every utterance that's been performed or uttered in both of those spaces continues to linger every night that something said or performed or sang there. I think and yeah. it's really beautiful, and you hear the tube trains going past in the theatre. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, down in Carré, it smells of horses because still it's because it used to be. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. You should tell that story because we both know that story, and people listening to it. Well, why does the theatre Carré smell like horses? <laughs> yeah, it was a circus. It was a, it was a circus. And there's another story I have yeah. to tell about Carré. Nobody knows what Carré is, but you know, the circus ended, and the di the, the director of the theatre had twelve horses, and he shot them on the beach because he didn't want the horses to be sold and become like workhorses. Wow. That's a crazy story, right? That your favorite horses, the horses that you loved, that you shot them to save them from weird story. A life outside the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a beautiful uh, privilege to speak to you, Vanda. Same, thank you so much. Really same, same, thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed. Are you going to come and see it? Yeah, I'm going to come and see it. Thank you. <laughs> it happened you giving up your soul for the comfort of their habits you feel it I feel you deep in your chest now all that carrying needs to be laid to rest cause where you gonna go when the knee bleeds dry when you're ready to be seen But there's nothing left to feel Where you gonna go When the need bleeds dry They'll swear it isn't as you tell it Though your body it remembers It hurts like hell you say Those sweetened smiles you gave it burned the inside of your mortal frame Set it on fire, burn those broken ways Burn that broken face Cause where you gonna go When the need bleeds dry When you're ready to be seen But there's nothing left to feel Where you gonna go 
When the need bleeds dry Mama worked her finger She always tried her best You wish she would've You learned she couldn't Release that body you've been harboring You've got some blooming to get moving with Let me begin Stop running within Cause where you gonna go When the need bleeds dry When you're ready to be seen But there's nothing left to feel Where you gonna go When the need bleeds dry We're safe now, keep moving We're safe now, keep grooving We're safe now, you'll survive What makes you shrink is your divine We're safe now, keep moving We're safe now, keep grooving I'm your future, you're my past And all that caring needs to be laid to That was Where You're Gonna Go, performed by Venda, with music by Venda and Isabel Waller-Bridge, and lyrics by Somalia Nonye Seaton. You've been listening to a special edition of the Royal Court Playwrights podcast, with me, Simon Stevens, produced by Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.